until her death in 2019, Annabelle and her husband, James Weaver, spent a lot of time together in hospitals, inpatient and outpatient wards, waiting in makeshift waiting rooms, in corridors and in atriums. Now, while you and I might notice the way things in that hospital looked, James and Annabelle noticed the way in which it sounded. And James has written about that for the Christmas edition of the BMJ. Now, part of his interest in that is because James is pursuing a PhD at Queen Mary University of London into acoustics and the intelligibility of sound. And in this podcast, we're delving into the sound of a hospital and why it can make communication between staff and patients so hard. Annabelle um, was my wife and uh, unfortunately she died from stage four metastatic melanoma on November the 6th, 2019. I'm sorry to hear Um, that. But beyond that, she was, uh, thank you. Uh, Beyond that, she was also, you know, a person who lived and did lots of amazing things in her time. She worked in publishing. Um, Obviously, as she um, got iller, she was not able to work as much, but she contributed a lot to the community, getting involved in lots of different projects, um, particularly actually also patient experience work as well, looking at how cancer patients um, experienced the hospital setting. Mm. And your work is very much around, uh, as I said, acoustics and sound and, mm-hmm. and music and things. Um, did Annabelle share that love of sound and music with you? Uh, Annabelle loved music. Actually, it was one of her, um, one of her passions, I'd say, and actually one of the things we bonded over. She was very impressed that I was a musician when we met. Um, and. Yeah, it was it was definitely a big part of our lives, you know, going to concerts and listening to music at home. Uh, she couldn't hold a note, um, but you know, she was very much involved in 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 appreciating music, yeah, and sound. And the article that you've written for us is very much around um, her experience of sound within the hospital and as she was treated and that treatment led to hearing loss. That changed her her experience. And I think that story is uh, really important, really interesting to hear it from a very different point of view. When was it you first started, both of you, kind of noticing the sound within half talks? I think that's something that yeah, people probably don't do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that, I mean, for me personally, I've been interested in sound for, you know, the majority of my life. And, uh, my PhD work is actually about how um, reverberation affects musical performance and expression. But before that, what I was really interested in was how sound in and acoustics in different large spaces like shopping centres or hospitals particularly actually affects people's mood and their emotion. So I was always aware of it and this sort of thing I used to talk to Annabelle about before um, I did my PhD, before I began my PhD. And is when we started spending a lot more time in hospital waiting rooms and uh, the particular place I always think of um, is in Bart's Hospital where Annabelle was treated and uh, the waiting room for cancer was actually in the large atrium so if any of the listeners know that space you know it's a very modern 
space quite highly reverberant actually um in fact at one point my supervisor and i were thinking about hosting a concert in there to sort of showcase um the acoustics mainly because i'd spent quite a lot of time there and so so had my supervisor for a different different medical reason but Annabelle and I really noticed that. And, and it was also not just the kind of the reverberation or the acoustic of the environment. It's actually the background noise, the bleeps, the whirring and things like that. And there was a particular point I remember in, uh, it was 2015, uh, where Annabelle spent about a month in hospital after a reaction to some medication. Didn't go very well. Um, and... She was uh, fortunate enough to be in a private room because she was quite poorly at that time. But it was still incredibly noisy. And, you know, she used to complain about the um, the, the noise in the middle of the night, the bleeping of the machines. You know, as patients and their partners or their family, you're not supposed to know how to switch off the bleeps on various machines. But... You know, if you spend enough time in hospital, you know which buttons to press to make a <laughs> drip stop buzzing when it's finished and, and so on. So I think those are the times we really started noticing like sound. And as someone who's interested in sound, uh, I was particularly fascinated by the different tonalities mm. of the beeps. Um, you know, some of them are actually quite musical and I think, you know, contribute to the soundscape of a hospital and how you orientate yourself. <laughs> So let's have a little think about that soundscape. Yeah. And it's really interesting talking to someone who thinks about this uh, in a kind of musical way, because what we've been talking about are some perhaps quite low frequency, constant rumbling sounds. Yeah. There are some yeah. higher frequency, you know, sounds that are designed to attract attention, alarms and things like that. Beeps, which are constant and, um, mm -hmm. you know, will be going on all night um yep so yeah when could you describe for us from from your point of view what what that soundscape in the hospital is like so when we think about the soundscape of a hospital essentially it's akin to the landscape so almost like an auditory topography of the environment and in the literature you know there's lots of academic literature written about this particularly by uh, schaefer which i reference in the article and we can divide the soundscape into three essential elements, uh, the keynote, uh, the signal, and the sound mark. So in a hospital environment, the keynote would be the pervasive sound, you know, a low-level hum of air conditioning units or medical equipment being used. And the signal would be something that requires your attention. So it could be an alarm sound, you know, that piercing uh, sound that you get when a, a drip or something like that. Uh, finishes and then the sound mark is something that might be unique to that environment so in a particular ward there might be a specialist piece of equipment so or in a, a particular medical environment so it could be the whir of a, uh, a a machine that's used for brain scans or something like that so these different sounds uh, and different conjunctions make up the soundscape now, another thing that happened to Annabelle as um, her mm. treatment went on was that she progressively uh, lost her hearing. And that mm. changed the way, obviously, um, she perceived uh, 
that that ambient soundscape that we've we've talked about in hospital. Yeah. But beyond that, so. it changed um, your ability to to communicate with her, and suddenly mm. that soundscape, instead of being a, a background thing, became much more sort of problematic in in that communication. As Annabelle's hearing deteriorated, the the prevalence of uh, sound um, became more important, actually, to us. You know, in some ways, you'd think as as your hearing declines, you know, you become less concerned with background noise. But actually, as you begin to wear hearing aids. Um, background noise becomes more of an issue in some cases you know that there was a kind of crucial point where she was at the threshold of being able to hear with hearing aids but it was becoming increasingly difficult and she was able to mitigate that because uh, for someone who you know was relatively recently losing her hearing she became extremely good at lip reading uh, through some training she had through um, action on hearing loss now the rnid that really helped her but you still need you know some of because she wasn't completely used to lit reading she still needed some sound so and that encompassed with kind of the noise of you know waiting to hear your name be called in a noisy space you know sometimes she wouldn't know and i'd have to sort of give her a nudge to say hey we're up um or even in sometimes you know um consultation rooms it can be slightly hard to hear especially for doctors facing the opposite direction to you because they're looking at the screen looking at your results yeah. quite Quite rightly, they wouldn't necessarily be able to hear. Because the sound's being focused on a different direction. Yeah, exactly. It's been focused, and you can't lip read. At this point, we can introduce Irami Pai, who's an ENT surgeon and one of Annabelle's hearing team, while she was in Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. James and I managed to catch up with her to ask. What's going on with people's understanding of speech when they're beginning to experience hearing loss and why background sound becomes so important? The ear serves a very kind of simple function in terms of concept. So the external ear and the middle ear just purely conduct sound into the, they deliver the sound into the inner ear. Mm. And so sound, which is kind of, you know, vibrating air hits the eardrum, eardrum vibrates, the three little bones of hearing, the ossicles vibrate in turn. Mm -hmm. And um, that um, vibration um, travels from air to water, which feels, well, liquid, um, that fills the inner ear. Um, There's kind of wave within the inner ear that that moves the hair cells inside the cochlea. And the function of the cochlea, the inner ear, is to convert that physical energy into electricity, mm-hmm. which is what the brain understands. So the electrical impulses travel up the hearing nerve, go to the brain, and that's the kind of the upstream. Um, there's a huge component um, of what we call top-down. So it's a bit like when, you, when we read, we don't look at each alphabet, form a word, look at each word, form a sentence, and then read. Our eyes just scan, don't they? I mean, just, which is why sometimes it's actually quite difficult to spot a spelling mistake. Mm. Or even if it's badly punctuated, you just kind of know. And the hearing works in a very similar way in that when you are listening to what I say, it's not 
so much that your ear sends every package of information to the brain and then your brain kind of interprets it and you understand. You kind of understand what I'm saying because you've heard it before, if you know what I mean. At this point, Irmi pointed us to research from the University of California, Berkeley, which illustrates her point really well. And they've given us permission to use it in this podcast. Did Sean catch that big goose without help? By eating yogurt, you may live longer. By eating yogurt, you may live longer. A toothpaste tube should be squeezed from the bottom. So your brain can do a bit of the work to to, to fill in the information that um that you're even if you're you're hearing is attenuated and you're not getting it as, as clearly. Absolutely. We describe it as filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm. So you catch certain keywords and your brain kind of fills in the gap and mostly correctly guesses what is being said to you. Um, the problem with that, there are two things. I mean, it's, it's a good thing because it helps you function. Two problems um, is that one, um, it's a huge amount of effort because you're constantly having to kind of concentrate and guess what's being said to get it correct. And the second thing is, because of that, um, people don't realize that you have got significant hearing loss, even when you do, because you're guessing. And when you guess wrong, um, if they don't realize how much you're having, how hard your brain is having to work to maintain that listening and maintain the conversation, and sometimes people get, a lot of the times, people get kind of frustrated with you and say, oh, what's the matter with you? And it's just making me think, um, James, yeah. you were saying that um, when Annabelle was um, starting to to lose her hearing mm. before she had a cochlear implant, yeah. that, that that very much was, was her experience. It was exactly that experience, yes. Um, so one of the things you were talking there is about expectation essentially and it's actually a very similar thing we have in music as well and how we understand how music works it's a concept of expectation and long-term short-term memory rules of seven and segmentation and when Annabelle was losing her hearing I mean obviously you met her quite a few times around that time Um, and quite often we'd go to things where people wouldn't realize that she was actually completely deaf before the cochlear implant because she was very skilled at lip reading and inferring meaning because she acquired her hearing loss at you know a relatively sort of like developed age um, i think she was 35 when her hearing started to go so yeah she would definitely be able to lip read and infer what was happening in the conversation but there were times when people would suddenly realize that she was profoundly deaf um and that was quite often some way into the conversation and I mentioned that in the article actually yeah and it was, it was making me think that that anticipation that your brain kind of has to know what's being said um to fill in those gaps and in a situation in a hospital when perhaps you're having some technical aspect of your diagnosis or treatment being explained and there are new concepts in there new words um that must be. Does that make it hard for your brain to actually do that work of, of filling oh, of in course. the gaps? And um, so, for example, um, when we 
try to explain things to people very hard of hearing there will be new exactly as you say new concepts new words new phrases um, quite often we have to do a mixture of talking um, but also typing at the same time um, I remember that vividly <laughs> and um, and another thing another fight another kind of difficult things uh, another difficult thing is um, there's a big difference between detecting sounds and comprehending complex speech signals. So that um, a lot of people with hearing loss, um, before it gets to kind of a severe to profound range, what the thing that goes first is the clarity and resolution of speech. So you, you've, you've, you've heard this person's voice, you know this person is talking to you, you've heard that fine, but what's missing is the clarity and then people are saying, "Well, are you, in, in 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 certain cases, you know, they get told, are you are you you're not paying attention? You're not. Are you being dumb? Or you've heard my? I know you've heard my voice. You know, I know you're talking. I, I'm talking to you. So why are you not understanding what I'm saying? So there's a big difference between hearing and listening, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, no, it, it does. Um, the bit I wondered when James was talking about the the soundscape at the beginning, um, when people experience hearing loss, uh, they sometimes um, I've had friends say it's harder to distinguish, um, you know, a conversation that's happening in front of you to some background sound, a conversation that's in the the bed next door, and I've never really understood why that is. I think, I think What's going things. on that makes so it harder to sort of focus on, so on much a of single person? Our communication voice. is nonverbal. That when you are on the same topic and when you're talking facing someone talking one um, one to one and you know what the topic is, there's a huge amount of kind of nonverbal communication, you know, facial expressions, everything else. Um, your brain filling the gap because you know the topic. Um, but also the other problem is when uh, the people, sometimes people have this kind of slightly simplistic view of kind of low frequency, mid frequency, high frequency hearing loss, that if you've got high frequency loss, you'd have difficulties listening to high pitched things or um, understanding female voices because we have a um, um, kind of a high, um, um, higher kind of fundamental frequency. Um, and you'll be okay with male voices, but it doesn't actually quite work like that. The high frequency hearing is what helps you, what gives you the clarity and the resolution and being able to, the ability to track speech and suppress background noise in kind of relative terms. So again, when you, it's almost always the high frequency hearing that goes first, regardless of the etiology, so you get to the stage situation where people are not sure what's going on because when they're on the telephone, a quiet room, small group discussion, no background noise, they can hear absolutely fine. But once background noise is introduced, the speaker is not facing you. Everyone's talking at the same time on different topics. So there's a limit to which you can guess what's being said then suddenly your, ab your ability to cope kind of crashes, if you know what I mean, disproportionately. So we describe this situation as cocktail party situation. 
big room, loads of echo, reverberation, loads of people talking at the same time. Not everyone obviously standing in front of you, background music maybe, lots of different signals, human speech, music, glasses clinking, people walking around. And then if you, especially if you've got high frequency hearing loss, then it will be noisy. You, you appreciate that it's actually very noisy, but you can't pick up the speech you need to hear. Can I ask you about the cocktail party <clears throat> effect? Because I, was, I, was, I thought you were going to go there. Um, so am I right in thinking the cocktail party effects where you can't hear the people next to you, but you can actually hear someone standing, say, 10 feet away? Um, might be able to hear 10 feet away, but you might be able to make out. You might not be able to make, you probably won't be able to make out. So you can still um, be, your hearing can still be disrupted by a noise that is 10 feet away because you can hear it, but there might be a person sitting and standing kind of two feet away, but slightly off center talking to you, but you might not get it. So the kind of sound that James and Irumi were talking about there, that could be the sound of someone conversing in the next bay on a ward, but it could also be the echoey sound that's so common in hospitals. James and I also spoke to his friend, Arthur Luis Nunez, who's an acoustician, and he works on the acoustic design of buildings, including hospitals. And we talked to him about how sound and space interact to make understanding of speech difficult. And we'll hear from Arthur after this from the BMJ's Christmas Appeal. Hi, I'm Sabine Goodwin, the coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network, or IFAN. IFAN is the charity that the BMJ has chosen for its annual appeal this year. IFAN supports a range of emergency food aid providers operating across the UK, including over 400 independent food banks. Their work has never been needed more. IFAN also campaigns and advocates for the systemic changes that would reduce the need for charitable food aid in the first place. You can find out more about our work and support us through our donate button at www.foodaidnetwork.org.uk. Thank you very much indeed for your support. And back to that interview with Arthur, talking about reverberant sound. Essentially, it's the, the way that the sound spreads through the space. Um, the sound will then interact with the surfaces, the, the walls, the floor, the ceiling. And depending on the acoustic properties of those materials, um, it will in all likelihood bounce back um, into the room and then, or, or it may interact with another surface. And in a room that's um, constructed largely from acoustically reflective hard materials, which, which tends to be the case in most hospital buildings, we're actually hearing a very large number of delayed versions of the original sound, all superimposed on top of one another. And so what tends to happen is uh, the sound becomes muddy as um, one syllable from the delayed sound masks the syllable, the direct syllable um, from the, um, the the previous syllable from the direct sound and it, and this this causes a, you know, 
well, it gives rise to a kind of reverberant um, atmosphere and sound becomes muddy and um, and it starts to degrade the intelligibility of sound. And I mean, I'm thinking of scenarios like this where someone's name's called and then perhaps called a bit louder and a bit louder still. Would that help with the intelligibility or does that just make it worse? It, it, it doesn't really help because you're... the Essentially, you're just magnifying the delayed um, signal uh, and the, the which, is, which is interfering with the direct signal, which is what you really want to be uh, hearing. So, repeating it aloud it doesn't have any um, impact or doesn't improve the uh, intelligibility. In that situation, then, if shouting louder is not going to work, what does work to to make that um, that kind of echoey sound uh well less echoey perhaps or, or or better easier to understand yeah so as i mentioned it's related largely to the properties of the materials that the room's constructed um from and so rather than the walls and the ceiling um reflecting sound uh, if they're if specific types of material are used that uh, absorb the sound when it interacts with that surface, then rather than the sound wave bouncing back into the space, it gets absorbed into that material, or at least a certain proportion of it. And there's also a frequency dependency of these materials, but the general uh, their, their ability to absorb sound can reduce the level of reverberation in a room and which improves the intelligibility and, of speech. I mean, we're doing this at the moment. I'm, because COVID, working from home from my spare bedroom and surrounded as much as I can with soft furnishings and carpets and a cushion in front of me to absorb um, some of, of that reverberant sound. Um, but these are things that you probably don't want to be sitting around a hospital, you know, absorbing uh, bacteria or, you know, even COVID, I suppose. Um, so you've you've done this with hospital. What kind of things uh, actually work in a hospital space to, to start attenuating some of that sound? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And you know, it's, it's the reason or a large part of the reason why a lot of hospitals traditionally um, haven't used materials that have got the types of acoustic properties that would that we would like to see, um, as you say, because they don't lend themselves to um, infection control to being effectively uh, cleaned and disinfected. Because um, generally speaking, they're made they, they they're fibrous or they're made of a kind of foamy materials um, open cell materials which you know which are difficult to clean um so in more recent years um products have been developed um specifically for use in hospital environments and other environments where hygiene is um, really critical uh, which are designed to be cleanable 
um, so they can be wiped down. And generally speaking, on the whole, these tend to uh, involve encapsulating the fibrous material in a very thin film uh, that can be cleaned and it has a minimal impact on the acoustic properties of the underlying <laughs> material. Thinking, like all those uh, 1970s plastic sofa covers on everything. <laughs> it's that you, you wouldn't, it, it, yeah, it, it's, you could barely uh, see it. It's a, um, they, they, don't, they don't kind of have that sort of shiny um, appearance, but yeah, that's, it, in a sense, it is effectively covering a, a soft material in a very kind of thin plastic film. And that, that's, that's the general approach that these materials take. One of the things that we particularly found and Annabelle mentioned and I noticed as well was when you're on a ward with multiple people, there's lots of crosstalk. Um, it, you have blinds to protect your privacy, but actually doesn't protect you much from the um, the noise of people around you. So that was something as well that particularly, you know, uh, if you're trying to sleep, um, trying to have a private moment it can be quite difficult so the separation is visual not necessarily mm. and that sort of sound privacy um arthur is that a kind of a thing that you've been thinking about in terms of um acoustic hospital design yeah i mean that's one of the really critical uh issues and one of the real challenges acoustically in hospitals uh, is the question of privacy, acoustic privacy. Um, because there's, by necessity, there's lots of occupants uh, within a given space, lots of beds, and, you know, large numbers of bits of equipment all making noise, and, and, and they're just generally places that are full of activity. Um, and so it is, a, it is a real challenge and part of the answer to that lies in the materials similar to the ones we've just been discussing because um, one of the effects that they have is they help to control the extent to which noise spreads and propagates across the space. So rather than reflecting off a wall or a ceiling back down to a bed, it, the sounds absorb. Clearly, it doesn't completely address the issue. It reduces the spread of noise, but it's it's actually a quite an effective part of the strategy. Now, there is of course the direct sound and the you know using acoustically absorbing materials uh, and finishes is going to be part of the solution. But um, as James was saying curtains um, that draw around that really do nothing effectively in terms of attenuating noise and stopping the propagation of noise. So it is not really a particularly common solution but as a sort of interim step between having fully separated rooms and having a completely open plan ward. Um, one approach that people have looked at is to use dividing partitions that are solid and they just separate one bed from the next but they're still open at the front so it has a so it's still there's still a 
relatively open plan arrangement. But these are much more effective than curtains at reducing the spread of noise from one bed to the next. So Arthur, that reverberant sound is one thing when, when people are beginning to lose their hearing. Um, but James, you said that Annabelle um, had some hearing aids to help treat that hearing loss. But those hearing aids came with their own set of problems. Obviously, actually, Annabelle particularly found that when she was wearing hearing aids, that um, alarm sounds were particularly harsh. It was slightly less so with the cochlear implant, I think, um, because she she actually adjusted to the cochlear implant extraordinarily quickly, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, but the hearing aids, because her hearing was deteriorating quite quite quickly, I think it's fair to say, um, you know, there's a constant adjustment and high frequency sounds, very piercing alarms in hospitals and things like that were causing quite, in some cases, discomfort, but actually masking kind of this, the information that she needed to receive. And that was pretty tricky sort of, you know, when you're, you know, as we've discussed before, waiting for your name to be called in a uh, very highly reverberant waiting area or even actually in the audiology clinic, um, at Guys and Thomas's, we she couldn't often hear her name being called um, because you know there was other sounds going on that were essentially masking speech. And another thing about this kind of kind of piercing mm. alarms and things being very uncomfortable, there's also a concept of um, what we call dynamic range. So everyone has kind of a dynamic range in their hearing, even a normal hearing person. So there's that bit at the bottom where you can start detecting sounds and the sound gets louder and louder and you get, get to the level where it's comfortably loud and then you bump up the sound even more it starts actually getting uncomfortable and we all do it when we're walking along the street and siren goes past and you think oh that actually physically hurts my ears because it's gone above your um, um, kind of um, uh, comfort loudness and mm. um, unfortunately you'd have thought that if you're here, if your um, um, detection starts here and you, it starts getting uncomfortable here and your hearing drops, the whole range should kind of shift together. So before, if 90 dB noise was uncomfortable for you and you've lost about 30, dB, um, 30 decibel hearing and that, that, that level will shift also down to, uh, shift or shift mm -hmm. up or down, depending on how you look at it, to 120. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. So the dynamic range yeah. kind of starts narrowing yeah. generally. So the sound signal has to be louder for you to detect. But when you get the um, the uh, um, uncomfortable level doesn't rise together. So you've got a very narrow range um, in which you have to negotiate so that it's amplified enough for you to detect, but it's not amplified so much it starts getting mm. uncomfortable. And in some cases, um, you have to bump up the amplification for you to hear, but your the, 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 the threshold at which it starts getting uncomfortable actually drops. So before, when your hearing was better, you were probably okay until when the sound uh, the sound signal was until about 80 dB. But now, paradoxically, your hearing is getting worse. You input sound at a sound level of about 65 decibel, which is quieter it's already hurting and that makes hearing aid fitting very, very tricky. Well, with the mm. cochlear implant, but hearing aids are amplifiers. 
So they're all digital. You can pick up frequencies, but they're basically, in simple terms, making things louder. Um, with the cochlear implants, it works in a completely different way. So the implant, the, elect the implant is taking over the role of the cochlea and the processor converts sound into electrical impulses. So you've just taken over the whole thing. So it, it, cochlear implant doesn't amplify. It is a completely different way of hearing. It is, uh, it is uh, like a, oh, um, electricity generator, I suppose. I think one of the things uh, that I've been thinking about is actually how those sounds become normalized in the environment so you know mm -hmm. the bleeping of a, a particular alarm if you hear it all day as a as someone who works in that space you, yeah. you don't become completely um uh, you don't come completely sort of inured i think that's the right word um mm. to it i'll say that again you don't become completely inured to it but you know it will become part of your low level kind of sound it'll actually start fitting into that kind of baseline soundscape that i mentioned before um, yeah. And um, I suppose then, um, again, you have a kind of auditory cortex or hearing part of your brain kicks in and um, kind of packages and categorizes it into yeah. ignore. And so someone's experience, uh, you know, a nurse or a doctor who's on a ward all the time, um, from, from what you're saying here, um, who understands the context of the speech that's going to be, you know, the context of the conversations that are going on, who whose brain is kind of primed to ignore some of those background sounds that they, they hear every day. Um, it must be quite hard for people to actually really understand um, how difficult it might be for someone on their ward to understand what it is that they're saying. Oh, completely. Um, and also there is that, um, I suppose a couple of things. One is, I think the functionality of the design of clinic area, um, wards, is kind of almost the kind of at odds with making the environment acoustically friendly, if you know what I mean. When, um, especially in places where kind of space is just, prime you can't just even if you have the fun to build and build for example at St Thomas's you just can't build anymore because of where we are same goes with guys um the other thing is I, I might be being terribly un, um, 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 unfair but there also seems to be a little bit of a strange trend in kind of modern architecture where the aesthetic uh, overrides the functionality and um, it's certainly kind of the you know acoustic friendliness of the environment, and um, you know lots of the modern kind of newly built hospitals. You walk in and there's just this huge, beautiful atrium with glass walls, glass ceilings. The, <laughs> you know that kind of we're thing. We're thinking of the same atrium by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you think really so freezing in the winter baking in the summer, um, huge amount of echo reverberation. It's just, just very difficult. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted, uh, Emery, the, the last bit that we would probably put in is a, um, you know, as, <laughs> as an audiologist who, who helps people like Annabelle 
um, hear better whilst they're they're in hospital. Um, do you have any tips for you know clinicians, uh, doctors, nurses who who are treating someone with some hearing loss about how they can they can do their best to to help that person understand you know when they're being spoken to uh, what's going on. Um, I I think as um including our trust, I think you know this mandatory training about which fire extinguisher to use, you know that kind of mm. stuff. Um, there's complete lack of staff training for dealing with um, um, helping people with hearing in hearing difficulties. Um, very simple things, not just at work, but you know in everyday life, um, is. Simple things, face the person um, and don't shout because all it does is just distorts the speech. And because, as we said, the problem is not just a detection, but for most people, the problem is clarity and resolution. So shouting doesn't really help. Um, the other thing is, um, by all means, slow down your speech and speak more clearly, but don't talk funny. Um, it, again, I, I just kind of liken it to um, vision. I, an ophthalmologist will probably have a fit with me. Um, <laughs> but if, if you imagine someone's written you a letter, all in block capitals with no punctuation or really weird punctuations. And you try to read that and you think, oh, my God, I can't read that. That's really yeah. tiring. So if you speak really strangely and shouting and breaking the normal rhythm of speech, it actually becomes harder for people to understand. Because, again, going back to your brain filling in the gaps. So if you have acquired speech, if you have acquired language, your brain is used to hearing how people normally talk. Mm. So you suddenly break that speech, uh, that, that the pattern and the rhythm of speech, and it just becomes even harder to kind of guess what is being said. So slow down to a clear level, um, but don't break the rhythm of speech Speak comfortably, loudly, but don't shout. Uh, but okay. but sometimes it just goes back to something even something even simpler. If the ask the patient if they're really struggling, this ask, um, do you have a hearing loss? Do you have hearing aids, or where are you hearing aids? Ah, they are in the bedside cabinet that's locked. Take them out, put them in. If they run out of batteries, put some batteries, practical things. I expect people listening to this next time they go into a hostel, into a ward, just to to spend a little more time listening and thinking about about what they're hearing. So, uh, yeah, I think if if I was going... If I was going to sort of suggest one thing, it's when you go onto a ward, just spend like a couple of minutes, you know, with your eyes shut if you if you're able to spend that time, and just think about the environment and the sound. Because as a as a person with you know good hearing, you don't necessarily consider some of the ambient sounds around you that might be at a particular frequency that might be quite annoying for someone 
you know, using hearing aids. And people with hearing loss, I think sometimes, because it's a, essentially what they say, and with people for people with hearing loss some would say it's you know an invisible disability and you know annabelle used to experience this quite regularly that people wouldn't realize that she could not hear in some scenarios by you know being able to infer conversation because she was a very good conversationalist and had experience of that and she was able to lip read to a pretty high standard so we were in some environments where medics who maybe hadn't been able to fully read her notes wouldn't even know she had hearing loss until she declared it you know that could be sometimes if there's lots of information going on quite a way into the conversation now that's it for this podcast but it's not it for christmas there's more yet to come we'd heard earlier about the bmj's appeal from the independent food aid network and we will have a couple of podcasts uh, explaining why food aid is so important now Uh, in a time of COVID and potentially in a time of Brexit. We'll also hear from the usual teams. We have a talk evidence delving into some of those Christmas research papers and what it is that our research editors are looking for when they choose them. We've got some more well-being, and this time about Santa's human factors. And we have a sort of pen podcast GP session with the Deep Breath In team a little Christmas quiz looking back on some unexpected learning points from 2020. Those are all available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.